0: Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark.
1: And I'm Rochelle Moulton.
0: And today we're going to reach back into the listener question bag. Yay. So Why do I
1: feel like a Doonesbury episode all of a sudden?
0: <laughs> I love Doonesbury. <laughs> Mailbag. So, yeah, so we had a couple of questions that uh, I don't want to say filled through the cracks, but we haven't gotten around to. Uh, so apologies for that, but we wanted to... Uh, Pull them up and answer them today because I'm sure that they will, even if they are, even if it's too late to help the original asker, I'm sure they'll help other people uh, who maybe have similar questions.
1: Yeah, they're good questions.
0: Yes. But first, I want to say um, a little bit of housekeeping. On a previous episode, I said to Rochelle we were talking about procrastination and to-do lists and how to delete things from the to-do list. And I said, uh, I'm just not bringing the car in. I'm just not bringing it in. And then Rochelle, you gave me the idea to stack it with like a pleasurable activity, which, uh, two, two follow-up things on that. First of all, I totally got busted because one of my wife's friends listens to the show.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. Hi
0: Christine. Hope you're listening. Uh, and I scheduled it and got it done. So,
1: Yay, yes. good so the, husband. Yes,
0: and I, and I want to say that I scheduled it before I got busted. That is, that is true. <laughs> good, because that's the, way better. Yes, your technique actually worked. Love it. <laughs> yes, it's a little follow-up there. Um, okay, so moving on to questions. We've got four questions still in the mailbag, and we're going to start with Andrea Moxham.
1: Hey Jonathan, this is Andrea Moxham from Horseshoe & Co with another question. When using the three why questions on a initial conversation with someone and the person on the other end is extremely unresponsive, they're very focused on topical kind of symptomatic problems and refuse to answer the question and really allow you to dig down to uncover that value that they've placed on the project, what do you do? Do you kind of cut ties and call it a day or do you continue to pry knowing that the person on the other end is not having it?
0: Mm, classic.
1: <laughs> Good question.
0: Okay, so uh, the the TLDR is that if I can't figure out what they're trying to achieve, I won't know what to do on the project. Yes, they're they're probably telling me things they want me to do, but I don't that doesn't give me confidence that I can deliver customer satisfaction at the end of the engagement. So if I don't have that confidence, I don't want to work with someone because I've been on plenty of projects where the, you know, they say, do this, do that, do the other, build this feature and make this button a little bluer and move that over there and put a carousel on the homepage. And I, I would do all of that. And then they're like, mm, maybe try this, maybe try that. And the reason that they, they they're, they're basically backseat driving so Mm -hmm. they're like turn left turn right go over there and it's like just tell me where you want to go i'm the cab driver i know the whole city just tell me where you want to go don't tell me how to operate the steering wheel so uh so so the tld that was was supposed to be the short version the short version (laughs) is i can't write a proposal if i don't know what they're trying to accomplish because i can't come up with a price because i don't know like what it's worth to them um so it's possible that that I would just be like, look, I, I don't think this is a good fit. Um, maybe you're you're just looking. Maybe you just need to hire an employee or go to Upwork or something like that. That said, there's a couple of things you can do to try and pull out of the nosedive and the kind of you know break glass in case of emergency line that I would I would say you know get maybe we're getting to you know it's been 45 minutes. I'm I'm just getting evasive responses or they they don't understand what I'm asking. Uh, I would be like. You know, this sound I'd say something like, "This sounds like an interesting project, and I, th- it seems like it's in my wheelhouse." But I just don't see the business case. Like, why would you give me a million bucks to do this to just have these features built? I don't understand what you're trying to accomplish. So, you know, I don't think it makes sense to put a proposal together and see if they, and if they do, if they do think they want to work with you. In other words, if they, if they feel like there's a possibility that you're the right choice for them, then. You might shake loose something like, well, you know, we're trying to, you know, whatever it is, increase productivity, decrease customer churn, uh, increase employee morale, improve the brand reputation in the marketplace, uh, have our CTO be perceived as a thought leader, you know, something, something a little bit more, um, more foundational, something that's more of the motivation, the, the transformation that they want to see happen. Um, so, if you know, that would be my Hail Mary at the end is like, I'm just not seeing a business case here. I, I can't, I wouldn't even recommend you hire me. You
2: know, mm-hmm. I don't want to talk
0: myself out of work, but I, I don't know how to hit a home run for you. I don't know where the wall is. How, where am I swinging? Uh, and if they're just so, I guess a, a corollary to this question and this answer uh, is why would someone be like that? And there are two main reasons one is that you're talking to the wrong person. Uh, They're like a gatekeeper who was sent out to get rates from people to bring back to the real economic buyer and they just don't have the answers to the questions. Um, That's one possibility and the way around that is to try and get past the gatekeeper and say, well, you know, look, I've got all these questions. I'd love to work with you, but I need answers to these questions to see if I'm a good fit. I don't work with people who I'm going to be a bad fit. Like why would, why would anybody want to do that? So is there someone that we could loop into the phone call or schedule another phone call that would have the answers to these questions? And they'll probably say no, but I mean, they'll probably say yes. I know, but we're not going to do that. Uh, that person, I'm protecting that person's time. But uh, sometimes you can get through to the the real economic buyer by doing that, saying like, I, I can't give you a proposal until I have the answers to these questions. Can we talk to your boss uh, and schedule another phone call? Uh, the other thing, the other thing is, you might be talking to the right person, but the person knows your, it, yeah, it can, it can happen two ways. First, I guess there's three, three problems. So the, the next one is that you're talking to the right person, but they know your job better than you do, or they believe they do. And this happens all the time when software developers want to work uh, with tech startups in Silicon Valley, where the CTO is like a whiz at React Native or whatever, and would actually rather be doing what they're considering hiring you to do, but they don't have time to do it. Uh, so this, is this creates a dynamic of like, of, of making shoes for the cobbler's kids where they know everything about, they're, they're not impressed with your skills. They don't, it doesn't seem like magic to them. So they're just going to second guess you and micromanage you and tell you everything you did wrong and nothing about what you did right. Uh, so there's that scenario. And I would walk, I just would walk away from clients like that. You don't want to work with people who have the same expertise that you do. It's, it, there's no uh. arbitrage.
1: Yeah. And and it's always going to be execution. There's never any strategic piece of that.
0: Right. Uh, And then the other thing, uh, the other thing is you're talking to the right person, but they are just trying to return to a status quo. They're not looking to create a new status quo. So something broke and it needs to be fixed so you know like they come to you and they say um hey uh i heard that you know wordpress my wordpress site stopped working i need to get it working again or we heard that you know uh, you understand the stripe api the the stripe api stopped something broke on our end and we're no longer able to process payments can you fix it so it's it's very much like um it's kind of like commodity work when you're just it's basically support and maintenance but a one-off support and maintenance gig which is really low value to people even if it's a huge breakage they it's like it's like calling a plumber because your toilet's clogged and and the plumber says like well why do you want the toilet unclogged you know why me why this why now it's like it's like cuz i want to use the toilet like it's so obvious it's it's rude or annoying for you to even ask me those questions it's like the toilet's broken can you fix it or not i'll get someone else if you can't so those, those are three common situations that, that make, the, that make the, the potential buyer or the potential, the person you're talking to, whether they're buyer or not, that can cause them to kind of be like, what are, why are we talking about this? Like, or just being reluctant to answer.
1: Well, and I feel like you're going to feel that. You know, when you you can feel that wall when you're on a call with somebody like that, mm-hmm. and it's it happens pretty early on if you're trying to have the the real value conversation, and it's they'll tell you even if they don't say the words, you can you you understand that they're not tracking with you. Mm-hmm. I think that's what she's getting at is she's that's what she's feeling in those in those situations, and you know those might be the calls that you get off way sooner mm-hmm. than the other ones.
0: Yep, sometimes. A hundred percent. You totally feel it. They're kind of like, there's these long pauses, even if you can't see them, um, you know, like, if especially
1: you, if you can't see them. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you hear more when you can't see them.
0: Could be. Uh, so sometimes I, sometimes I'll detect that and I can salvage the phone call. Cause they're it's more, it's not a defense so much as they're just confused. Like why are, I thought we were going to talk about something else. Why are we talking about this? So a couple of things about that. Um, first, I let them brain dump for like, I'll let them brain dump for a half an hour before I start to, you know, they'll usually exhaust themselves after a half an hour, but you need to let them get all that off their chest. Cause if you don't, they're not going to be listening to you. They're not going to be engaged with you. They're just going to be thinking about all this stuff. They're excited about the project and they've got all this stuff that they've been obsessing over and they need to brain dump it on you. And, and you should take notes on it and capture it. It may or may not be useful later, but you just have to let them barf all that out. And then once they've completely exhausted everything they know about the project it usually doesn't take a half an hour if if they're just a talker then maybe i would start to cut them off and and that would be a red flag anyway but they usually can tell you everything they need to do in like anywhere from 15 minutes to to 30 so around 20 to 25 minutes uh and then i'll say this is great i've got five pages of notes already uh can we back up and I want to. I just want to understand the bigger business context, so I don't accidentally paint us into a corner. Because there's like a hundred ways I could build this. I don't want to build it in some way that's oblivious of your your larger goals. And a good client will sit back and go, "Cool, yeah, let's do it." Uh, but sometimes, and a bad client will be like, "Why do you need to know that?" And a, a confused client will be like, "I guess okay." And then when I say, "Well, you know," I'll lead in with like, "Okay, I want to understand like." Why are you doing this? And if they're confused, I'll say like, well, like you got to break it down. You know, I, you guys know everything. I know nothing about your organization, your objectives, your strategy. What will happen? Why not not do this? What would happen if you didn't do this? And that's the point where they're going to be like, what is this guy doing? He's like, they'll either say like, oh, great question. Or they'll say um, like, it feels like you're talking yourself out of the job. Like, do you even want this job? Like they'll say this, something like that and i'll i'll laugh they will try and do it with humor so it's kind of funny and then i'll i'll say something like look as far the way i see it the way i run my business my product is not software it's customer satisfaction i want you after this is over i want you to build a statue of me outside of your building because it was such a success and they'll laugh and i'll say i'll be like look you know, I just, and I just want to know what that is. Like I, if I don't know where that, what that goal is, what's going to transform your business or what the big deal is, it's highly likely I won't get us there. I want to get us there. I want, I want you to be hiring me again next year and the year after that and the year after that. And if I can hit a home run for you every time we work together, or at least a double, then we can have a long relationship, you know? And I, so I would say some, you know, I wouldn't say all of that. I would have picked like a couple of sentences out of whatever direction that felt like the conversation was going but so sometimes people will be totally put off by this and that's not a good fit and I probably walk away from it sometimes people will be jump right in and totally understand that you want to engage at a higher level and that you're a business person trying to help another business person and not just a coder or a photographer or a copywriter and uh, and then but sometimes they they'll just be confused because they're used to talking to people who are order takers and so for someone to to it's not really pushback, but to like to, to probe a little bit deeper is it tends to be pretty unusual. So they might need a little bit of help getting, you know, sort of clearing up the cognitive dissonance of like someone, you know, maybe not taking our money. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you're, you're showing them, you're giving them a preview of what it will be like to work with you.
0: That is a key point. I'm glad you said that. Mm hmm. I-
1: yeah, I mean it, it's it's good for them to see that, and it's good for you to see is this going to work or not.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's why I love these preliminary meetings. You can really have fun with these.
0: Things. Oh, they're super fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. If you're getting butterflies, you're doing it wrong. You should. They should be talking you. They should be pitching you into working with them.
1: Well, and you know, sort of a side comment is. If you're really using your website to sell yourself, then you want to have those kinds of conversations on your site. You want you want to give the impression that when somebody talks to you, you're going to have these kinds of conversations versus, you know, what line are we going to put where? Mm-hmm. The, the more um, alignment you have with the message people get, whether it's on your LinkedIn page or your website, wherever they're going first to vet you then they're going to be more likely to expect you to behave, um, you know, the way that Andrea was describing.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. And I I always, uh, I always bring up the doctor example here, because your doctor is not going to do whatever you tell them to do. Your doctor's got ethics and standards and their professional um, certification and all, you know, they've got they're just not gonna do whatever you tell them, you know? And so that's the dynamic that you want with your customers. You're the expert of whatever you do and you're gonna defend that expertise and you're not gonna do things that are malpractice. Uh, that said, the customer is the expert of what they want. They're the expert of their customers. They're the expert of their business strategy, their objectives and all of those things. So don't question that stuff. That's their, that's their, that's up to them.
1: Yeah, their domain.
0: Right, so like if you go to the doctor And, and, you know, your hand hurts or you broke your wrist or something like that. Um, You're the expert of how you of how you're planning to use your wrist in the future. So like I, just to give an example, like um, when I was in a band, one of the guys, the other guitar player in the band, he, he's, he cut off the end of his finger. He was a, a he was a chef during the day and he cut off the end of his finger chopping fennel (laughs) and, and they had to, they were going to, they had to. Well, what, it was gross what they had to do. But anyway, they had to put a cast on his hand while it was healing. And he said, he wasn't telling the doctor the job, but he said, can you set it in this at this angle so that I can still play guitar with my other three fingers? <laughs> so it was a, a, you know, fairly extreme bend to the wrist. And like he wanted that. He had a good reason for that. And it wasn't malpractice for the doctor to do that. It was going to have nothing to do with the way the tip of his index finger healed. So so they were like, yeah, sure right so but that's a weird request but he was the expert of what he wanted like how he was going to use his hand the doctor theoretically the doctor could have said no you shouldn't play guitar but it, that wasn't really the problem it was it wasn't a problem so they're like okay if you want us to set it like that that's up to you it seems strange and it would be inconvenient uh, for other people it would be very inconvenient but for him it was ideal so they're the expert of what how they want their business to unfold but they can't the it's great when they are almost clueless about what you do. it almost seems like you're doing magic tricks because then they're not going to micromanage it as much. Uh, and you can just, you can have veto power over your stuff and have your ethical boundaries or your malpractice things that you consider to be malpractice. And uh, everybody just sort of has, is, is the, has the lead on their two different areas.
1: Yeah, I mean, in a way, you're saying, you know, this is this is what I'm committing to have happen as a result of this process. And in order to do that, I have to do X, Y and Z. Um, And and that might mean that you can't do some of the things that your client is requesting when they're that very kind of nitpicky, you know, order taker or order giver person.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. If you're if you're in that conversation and you can't get them out of order giver mode. It's yeah, it's not going to work.
1: Head for the hills now. Head
0: for the hills. <laughs> yep. They should, they'll gladly, a good client will gladly cede those decisions to someone who they trust as an expert. They'll gladly yeah. do it. They don't yeah, want to think about it.
1: And especially if you're dealing with somebody who isn't a technology person, and I'm the representative for that person on this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> people like me love it when I have somebody technical who understands what I'm trying to do. And who asked me a question so that I know that they un- understand that there is a bigger picture here. And then when they go off and do it and it just works, I, I, I pay a lot for that person.
0: Yeah. Right. Yep. Cool. Okay. Hopefully that answered Andrew's question. Maybe she's probably already moved on from that at this point, <laughs> but, but hopefully it helps other dear listeners. Uh, okay. Oh. Who do we have next?
1: Uh, the Ryan Wheaton question.
0: Okay, so Ryan Wheaton wrote in and asked
2: or sent in this clip. Hey there, first off, uh, really enjoy the podcast. So thanks so much for sharing your expertise. I run a service-based business doing branding and design for the craft beer industry. Uh, I have 20 years of experience in design, so I have plenty of knowledge in my craft where I'm currently struggling is having expertise in the beer industry itself. I want to be able to deliver solid measurable value to my clients and have those insights also for better marketing. Uh, Most of the folks I work with are like small mom and pop kind of businesses where the owners are super busy. So it can be hard to get the time to like work through regular projects, let alone be able to dig deeper into their like inner workings. My most recent idea was was for me to partner with a brewery and then I could actually work inside their business so I can gain that inside knowledge, basically be able to like kind of live it and work it. So my question is, would you have any ideas or advice on how to gain this sort of expertise in any given industry? Thanks a lot. Hope all is well.
0: Wow, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. And, and thanks yeah. for your kind
0: words, Ryan. Glad you like the show. Yes,
1: thank you. Well, I'm curious to see if we have the same reaction to this. So uh, first of all, kudos to Ryan for wanting to get more into his niche. And I love the sound of it. Um, you know, craft brewery sounds like something that one could get really excited about with all sorts of little nooks and crannies. Um, and I, I picture this devoted fan base of craft breweries comparing notes on this and that. And I noticed he, de- he didn't say where he's living, which might be interesting if he's in sort of a Mecca for craft brewery um, like... Um, um, Asheville, North Carolina would be an example, maybe Austin, some places like that. Um, but what I found so interesting is that I'm not sure what he meant by partner with a brewery, but I took it to mean that he wants to go inside the business. Yeah, and actually work there. Maybe work at the vats or, um, you know, wait on on tables or the bar if they've got that kind of a thing. And so I take that to be, That's going way to the other side, right? Is actually going inside and doing hands-on work to get that expertise. So my question would be, what other ways can you get that expertise? Are you reading um, or watching anything that's available for people that are running craft beer businesses? And what are the things that you can learn from big breweries that might apply to smaller ones? Like, are there um, economies of scale that you can somehow bring into this particular niche? I mean, I feel like while it would be interesting and fun to do that, it feels like a very labor intensive way to get smart about a business.
0: Think about all the free beer, though. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well,
1: that's what I mean. It's like if somebody said to me, "Oh, I, I want you to go um, work at this winery for three months." I mean, I I'd probably want to sign on. I have to say, <laughs> <laughs> or an art gallery, or you know, some something like that. But the question becomes: Is that the best way to spend your time to further your knowledge? And exactly. I, I would separate those two things. Like, what would be fun, and you want to do, and you might do it because it is fun, and the heck with the other stuff. Mm-hmm. But it is a very Labor-intensive way to learn and you're still only learning from one. Yeah. It's just one example It's not multiple,
0: right? Yep. Yeah, we're on the same page with a lot of that stuff So so it does seem pretty labor-intensive to me, but maybe the the maybe the enjoyment would offset it um, maybe the and, and totally pile on with Rochelle's last point is how much of that experience with the you know this first mom and pop brewery would translate to the next, I think it's fair to say you wouldn't be able to keep doing this unless you charged quite a bit of money for it, which seems on improbable so yeah so if if you were going to embed yourself inside of the company inside of the brewery or um, it just seems like it seems like the cost to you is too high for what I imagine the value would be to the the buyers. So a couple, so a couple of things I would consider one, it's, it is extremely helpful to have knowledge of the industry that you're targeting. It's sometimes it's, sometimes it's helpful to have no knowledge because you can come in with completely fresh eyes and, and sort of break new ground and change paradigms and things like that. But that, I think that's a little more rare, um, than, you know, and more of like an innovation type of thing than it sounds like what you would be doing. So, uh, probably it's going to be really, it'll make your job a lot easier, the better, you know, the industry and the, th- the thing that I would l- like to, to see you be able to do is to do a cold read on new prospects. So a cold read is kind of like the black belt level. You know, it's like the, the super advanced level of the why conversation where instead of, you know, um, I almost said dragging the client through the why conversation instead of having to to put them through that sort of um, it's a it's it takes some emotional labor to like to talk about all the things that come up in the why conversation, the big picture stuff, the motivations, and all that. The level above that is when you know your type of clients so well that you can walk in and say, "Let me guess, you're trying to pivot because Amazon's coming into your space, and you've got." You know, 20-year-old servers running on-prem and you need to get them into the cloud before Amazon buys another uh, chain of supermarkets. And they're like, their eyes pop open and they're like, yes, <laughs> and you have them. So that's a cold read. So if you, and it's it actually more, it's better than the why conversation, but you need to know your industry inside out. So when I say better, I mean, it's just like, it's easier for them, it's easier for you, and you're more likely to close the deal. So that's, that is something that you might get if, if working, embedding yourself inside of a brewery for a week or something and doing, you know, shadowing each one of the positions uh, is transferable or common enough with other breweries of the same size, then it might allow you to do cold reads. So and I feel like there's a cold beer joke in there somewhere, but I can't find it so (laughs) So it could be it could doing it once might produce long-term benefits for you in terms of closing new business but that said I think that the kind of job I think the kind of um, I think you would need to be in a different business to actually get the kind of benefits that you would get so for example I would, I would imagine someone, uh, some sort of like automation expert or productivity or systems person, uh, somebody like that, that's maybe selling software solutions to craft breweries. That kind of makes sense for them to embed themselves in the workflow of a particular place, uh, a particular business, and then it might be transferable to other businesses. Uh, but they can charge a lot more money for that, probably than or at least significantly more money and maybe it's more transferable i don't know just this is all gut instinct
1: no i i that makes sense to me because he he said he's doing design and branding and that's all upfront work right it's strategic it's figuring it out and then it's helping them to stay on the path on some level but that's the teeny tiny part of the Mm. of the project it's all at the beginning so yeah it just it doesn't make sense to me that those two pieces come together, um, unless maybe he wants to start a craft brewery. Right. Yeah, there you (laughs) go. And this is his way of figuring it out. Yeah,
0: Yeah, it feels like a a solution to a different problem. Yeah. So the the other thing that I wanted to key off of in this question is he mentioned that he wants solid measurable results. And what that looks like, so let's talk about measurable for a second in results, but measurable. So a lot of people I talk to, they'll say like, like if they don't know, if I said, like, what's the wingspan of a 747? They'll say, I have no idea. And then I would say, well, is it two miles? And they'll say, no. And then I'm like, well, then you do have some idea. So the, the, the word measurement, a measurement is important. You take a measurement when you're trying to make a decision. You need to, like, can we land this airplane in, uh, I don't know, uh, on the highway I don't know, can we land this airplane on a football field? Yeah, definitely, or like an open plane. Yeah, definitely, it's definitely smaller than that. Can we land it in between these two mountains that are two miles apart? Definitely. Like any, anybody that's ever seen an airplane knows the wingspan's not two miles. So the question is, can you take a measurement that's close enough to be meaningful to make a decision? So if I was gonna, if I was, and branding's not my space, but if I was gonna measure, if I wanted to come in and like be able to measure it, I would say to them, well, what are, how do you know your brand isn't good now? And they, if they have an answer to that, then that's your measurement. We know it's not good because some, some answer. If they have no answer, then they, that means they think their branding's fine. Even if you disagree, if they think it's fine, there's no sale. It's not going to happen. You talking them into how bad their brand is, is probably not. I mean, you No,
1: that I will tell you that is not a way to go. <laughs> OK, I was, I was hoping. Yes. Yeah. No, <laughs> we, we don't. It doesn't work that way.
0: Right. Perhaps you could say something like, you know, you could in in your mind, in your heart of hearts, you could know that you're a brander, but you could present yourself as someone who increases foot traffic or sales or something like that and say, hey, would you like to have you know, Hey, I, I was, I was in here for lunch yesterday and I noticed there were only two other people in the whole place you had like 45 empty seats. Is that a problem? Would you, do you wish your lunch, you know, your Tuesday lunches were full and they would say, yeah. And then you could say, well, would you want to talk about that? I do whatever marketing and sales or, you know, and, and the branding piece might be something that you do, but you come at it from a symptom of bad branding, maybe, uh, that's farther downstream and closer to the money, closer to the pain, and say, Well, I could do a bunch of things that I believe will result in increased, um, whatever, m- more buns and seats on uh, your Tuesday lunch.
1: Yeah, I, I keep feeling like we're trying to solve a strategic problem with a tactical solution. Yes. Now. I want to know more about this. So let me get inside the business. And I think, you know, um, Ryan, what you really want to do is you want to rise above this and go to 35,000 feet and see what are the common problems in the industry and do research that nobody else is doing. That's where, as if I owned a craft brewery, that's the guy I'd want to talk to. And you can still, you know, work it through with design and branding solutions, but you come at it from an observational strategic view of what's happening in the industry and perhaps what you've learned from other adjacent industries. Like, what did you learn from, I don't know, does hard cider have anything to do, anything in common with successfully selling craft brews? I have no idea. But those are the kinds of things that you could spend some time in and really get smart in a way that your clients aren't because they know how to operate what they're doing. I mean, they know how to do that. Mm -hmm. They're the expert.
0: Yeah, I mean... I think I think it's generally easier to you know research like their trade publications or their conference websites and see what what these these craft beer owners are you know things that they are paying attention to or going to like a conference or reading a magazine or a blog or something like that if you if you know where they are congregating and what their where their interests lie with regard to their business you can probably learn 10 times as much, 10 times as fast. About Well, let's,
1: no, yeah. I just wanted to take an example. Let's say when conferences start up again, which seems like it would be soon, if you go to one, you could invite 10 craft brewery owners to a dinner. Yeah. You buy the dinner and you moderate a conversation. I guarantee you, even if it costs you $200 a person, you're going to get more value out of that spend than you will working inside a brewery for six months.
0: Yeah. Or even a week, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I will. The only thing I'm trying to like throw him a bone, though. It I could imagine because he did say like the owners are busy. I wonder if, if you let's say you engage with someone, maybe, you know, you know, Rochelle, how you have to have people do homework at the beginning of an engagement and uncover their stories and all of that. Um, maybe it, going in for a day to interview a couple of different people uh, to see what the story is, try to find an angle or the voice or, like, what does the brand stand for? What's the promise they're making? Maybe an on-site for an afternoon makes sense. But But he could do
1: that and get paid for it. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of standard stuff when you're doing – that especially a consumer brand like that but what I was wondering when he said mom and pops," he didn't say this but I was sort of interpreting that maybe he wanted to go a little bit bigger because he talked about how busy they are mm-hmm. and so maybe and when I say a little bigger I don't mean I don't know if is there such a thing as a national craft beer I guess there probably is but yeah maybe he wants to move up the food chain a little bit and, mm-hmm. and the problems as the businesses get bigger might change mm-hmm probably do.
0: Right. Yeah, so I could imagine, you know, imagine um let's just like spitball a few things. So he said I he did say brewer at the end, but at the beginning he said mom and pop craft or, or craft beer industry and that he usually works with mom and pops. But the craft beer industry, you could maybe and we've been talking about it like it's a, a retail location like there's a there's a restaurant of some kind or like a you know a place where people sit down or, or where sample. they
1: can sample the beer, yeah right,
0: right. But I could imagine doing like I don't know if this is outside of his wheelhouse, but I could imagine partnering with like people who are launching a new craft uh, brand that's just you know the intention of it is to go to like liquor stores or wherever you buy beer because heaven knows I don't know where to buy beer.
1: (laughs) In California, we go to the grocery store. (laughs) Yeah,
0: nice. But so, yeah, so like what I'm getting at here is like maybe some adjacency. So if, if, I don't know if this is the case, but let's just say in Ryan's mind, he's thinking of like breweries that make their own craft beer. Maybe he's not, but let's just say that's what he's thinking. Then look for, you could look for adjacent things in the field, like people who, who don't do that. Maybe there are people who supply Oh, I don't know. Supply bottles to the industry and they have different, who knows what. Are they essentially like white label brands? That seems like that would be heresy in the craft. In beer the space, craft, but, yeah. But it's, it definitely exists in wine, in the wine space for sure. Oh, sure, sure. So, um, and the other thing is not to really pull you off track, but uh, I know I've talked to more than a few designers who have niched down on the cannabis industry and coming up with packaging for all you know edibles and whatever all i I literally don't know about that space but but they they come up with packaging for people who are launching a brand new line a brand new product i don't know how often that happens with beer i don't recall ever hearing about somebody just like out of the blue launching a new beer line i guess but but i know that I don't know if that's even the right terminology, but you could theoretically um, be the person who goes to breweries and says, hey, if you're going to if if you have your stuff in um, supermarkets, let's say, and you're thinking about launching a new flavor, I guess you would call it, then that's that could be your specialty where you do all the the package design and branding around not the brewery, but like a particular is flavor, the right word, but like flavor of beer. You know well, I
1: mean? or or that line. It could be maybe it's a non alcoholic beer, or mm. it's there's a new wheat beer, mm-hmm. or um, yeah, I'm I'm not a beer expert. <laughs> right, right. But, but but yeah.
0: Yeah, I do know that that it's I've certainly heard that craft breweries will sometimes get bought by bigger like Anheuser Busch or whatever. And mm-hmm. they get, you know, or Sam Adams. And you know you could target people who are these sort of mom and pops who do want that to happen so they want to align you know maybe they've got a successful beer that's that that is very popular with their clientele locally and they want to take it to the next level uh but they feel like it needs it's just not professional enough it doesn't the, yeah, the packaging isn't good enough it just needs to, like the beer the product itself is good but the packaging isn't attractive right for um a, an acquisition And maybe they maybe they know just like their objective is to get one of their lines uh, acquired or get the whole brewery acquired or whatever. And then maybe you could prepare them to kind of like mm, enter the big leagues, so to speak, in terms of the packaging.
1: Well, it's a nice, big, juicy assignment, because in order to do that kind of packaging assignment, you've got to get a hyper clear on who the customer is. And who you're trying to appeal to. I mean, that's a big packaging assignment. I could see him, Brian, I can see you kind of, you know, digging your teeth into that. But I think a lot of this just depends on what angle you really want. Do you want to move up the food chain? Do you want, in terms of the size of the businesses, or are you looking to expand your design and branding into strategy, um, marketing strategy, which includes design branding, packaging, all those other things. So there's a lot of different ways you can do this. But I think, you know, I think what we're both saying is going into a brewery to work there, I would say that only makes sense if you want to buy a brewery or you want to start one yourself, you know, so that you can learn it. Because I I think you'll get bored with the day-to-day work of it pretty quickly after you've learned, you know, how the stuff is made and, you know, how the bottles come out. And it's probably all you're really going to care about at that point.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've gone, you know, in my consulting days, I would go on site for for in, in preparation for a big um, build that was going to create an internal system for like, you know, five teams, you know, 80 people across five teams. And in one day, you can meet with and have a, a good understanding of what's going on at each in each role in, in one day. So and I would think uh, a brewery would be similar, especially because you know I feel like a lot of the roles people are exposed to a lot of the roles, like what the servers do and what the people are you know like, oh, well, you know I'd be i, I the the biggest uh, I mean, I've worked in restaurants pretty much my whole life, so maybe that's maybe that's not true for Ryan, but you know, the only thing that I would have like lots of questions about is how they actually make it, so like the vats and all of that stuff and like where it comes from. so that would be my biggest line of questioning, but like you know, I don't That's know.
1: super easy. I, I was just thinking as as we were talking, I, I did a tour of my favorite craft brew, which I cannot get in California. It's called Long Trail Ale. It's made in mm. Vermont. And mm-hmm. we went on a tour.
0: I'll have extra if you ever come out. We've got part yeah, of it.
1: Oh it's awesome. I love that stuff. But anyway, um w- when my dad was alive, we did the tour. And I don't remember how long it was. I don't think it could be more than an hour, but you walk through and I think they had signs that would tell you like what was happening. This was in the early days, so it was not like it, it's probably super slick if they're still doing it. But after an hour, you pretty much get it. I mean, you don't understand enough to be able to cook your own vat, but you understand enough that you know this is what happens at the beginning, and this is what happens next, and this is how it's bottled, and why, and then, of course, you know, you drink it at the end, which is even more fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a great solution. Take a tour. Yeah, yeah, take a tour through the place, have lunch there. I feel like, I don't know what else you would we would need. I mean, the the basic business stuff is like they want to turn a profit. Maybe they have some kind of mission. Maybe they've got some kind of some kind of um, attitude about how they believe customers should be treated like their customer story you know there's and and it's you know there's a place near here called jeff's sandwich shop which is famously rude to their to you know and there are other you know i've seen like like uh uh food network shows about you know whatever mm-hmm. a sandwich place in philly where you have if you mess up your order you have to go to the back of the line you know so like
1: wiener circle in chicago
0: <laughs> they <laughs> swear go. at you yeah so it's, yeah, so you can't just assume that they have a particular attitude about customer service or guest service. So you could just go in there. I, I would think you'd have enough information to, by just going in there, maybe taking a tour, experiencing the staff. There's probably, I mean, I could imagine, you know, signage around the place that gives you the vibe of of the the owner's attitude toward the whole business and their clientele and, and the brewing process and like what their point is. Maybe not, but. Um, I mean, I can think of a few places I've been where you go in there for an hour and you get it.
1: Yeah, but, you know the other thing I like about his concept, his niche, is there's so many different ways you could organize a, a business and revenue model. For example, let's say that Ryan decided that he wanted to work with slightly bigger um, breweries than craft breweries than a mom and pop, so just a little bit bigger. And let's say he decided, you know, he could only do so many at a time. I don't know, one, two, three, and he took a piece of their business as part of it so um ryan could get very rich very fast um doing you know if you do it in a certain way or maybe you only take a cut in one you you only do one of those every two or three years because you know you've got to put food on the table in the meantime but there's there are lots of ways that you can build a story around you know brand design and market strategy with this niche you've chosen Mm -hmm. yeah it's pretty
0: cool. All right, yeah, so now I'm thirsty.
1: <laughs> I, I, I feel like there's other people who are going, oh, I should I should check out the craft brew business. That sounds like a good place to be.
0: <laughs> yeah. Cool, OK, so let's see, what do we have next? OK, so Jacob Lett sent in two quick questions um, there. I guess we'll just do the do first it. one. Yeah.
1: yeah, that one.
0: OK, All oh, right. you can see my screen. <laughs> yeah, I can.
1: <laughs> we have no secrets here. <laughs>
0: Alright, here we go. I work full time and do work on the side. A lot of the strategic work requires us meetings and calls during work hours, nine to five. Is there a service you would recommend that is high value but low time commitment? Or should I stick to products, workshops, and courses that are not so time and deadline driven? Thank you. Ooh.
1: Yeah, there's a lot packed in that short question.
0: Yeah. What well, yeah. I have my gut reaction.
1: Well, I- i do too but i want to answer i want to start the conversation in a different way which is what are you trying to achieve Mm -hmm. because if like if jacob said oh what i really want is i want to do x in a very strategic way and i want to have a handful of clients and i want to be this strategic god to this niche then i'd say find a way to keep working at what you're doing um but that wasn't really his question You know, but I think that's the starting point is what do you want out of this ultimately? And my interpretation was he wants a lot of money for as little time as possible. (laughs) So given that, Jonathan, I know what your answer is. Go for it.
0: Oh, okay. We'll see if we're on the same page. Uh, This is my general advice to people who aren't ready to leave the day job is to start at the bottom and work your way up the product ladder instead of the other way around. And there's a million, it depends on a million things and it might not be a good fit for you. But in general, knowing only what I know, uh, if I had it to do over again and I was still making my corporate salary, I would have, and and I had friends in my same department who had my same skill set who moonlighted on nights and weekends doing what we did at our day job building software. And I did not like that. I did not like that. Uh, when but I did try and emulate it a little bit i didn 't enjoy it it was um I was single and so forth but it, so it was it wasn 't the time thing it just didn 't something felt wrong about it and looking back on it, if I was going to do it over again, I would have started a newsletter from my desk and had a and started to build up an audience that I just helped and if you wanted to be you know you can be as strategic as anything with a newsletter meaning you know you could be like Ben Thompson at Stratechery and just write every day about strategic considerations for some target market. It could be a vertical, it could be uh, it could be a psychographic, it could be a demographic, whatever your segmentation is for your audience. Or it could or you could just be just a horizontal expert at a particular thing. You have a real specialty in whatever you're into, and I would I would take that time because it takes a long time to plant that garden. Uh, you know six six months easily so if, and before you're going to start to get any revenue at all so it's it's something that you need to fund some other way as you're getting started so if i were going to still be at, if i was still at my corporate job i would start a newsletter with the intention of turning it into a business not just a hobby thing but i would start a newsletter and i would build that audience and i would have conversations with that audience to see what kind of pains they were experiencing and then i would look for ways to solve those pains uh, in a way that would fund my progress out of the day job, so it would start with some kind of info product. Probably it would probably be under fifty dollars. Uh, it's something that I would you know try and it's just try and get more traction, see how many people on the mailing list convert into customers, you know, from some sort of friends on the mailing list to actual customers, and then keep repeating that process as you build a bigger and bigger base of your pyramid with all of these free subscribers and then you get some paid uh, people buying paid products or info products Uh, then you can just keep working your way up build the product ladder from the bottom say like okay of of this group what's something that i could sell to them for you know anywhere from 100 to 500 dollars that would solve some problem that for them is a thousand dollar problem and just keep building that stuff and you can do you could easily no i should say easily it's work everything's work but you could do that i think more easily from a day job than you could, you know, trying to schedule meetings around, you know, outside of nine to five, you know, and and just going straight into strategy services. I think that I I don't, that's not a great look. If you're saying to your prospects, like, yeah, could you meet me at nine on Friday? (laughs) it's, (laughs) It's awkward.
1: That's how you can always tell that somebody's got a day job when they start doing things like that. Yeah. But I, I, I don't disagree with what you said. Um, I just layer on top of that, that it's really what is it that you want to have happen? So because you can do all the things that you just said and absolutely start a newsletter, listen to people, talk with them, find what they want. But you also want to match it with what you want to do. So if you're not going to be into courses, don't set yourself up to do courses. Um, if what you really want is to be a strategy consultant and have a handful of clients, then that's going to be harder to have a side hustle in transition. At some point, you're going to just have to make the leap. But if you're coding, that's something that fits into lots of nights and weekends. I mean, that's an ideal side hustle, but I don't know that it gets you anywhere if it's what you're doing in your day job.
0: hmm the other, yeah, I'll add one more thing in there because right, if you if you want to make the leap to be a strategy consultant, uh, I would still write. and That yeah. could be it. Could be a blog. It could be a mailing list or whatever. Uh, but I would also start a podcast. Yeah. yeah. they need can, to
1: see how you think.
0: Yeah, and you want the, your voice in their ears, so that they're like, oh, I can relate to this person, or people who can't relate to you, they'll go away because they wouldn't make good clients anyway because they can't relate to you. But the ones who can relate to you. It creates this asymmetric intimacy and trust, you know, where, where they feel like they know you and, and you, you know, you, you don't even know who they are. You've never heard of them. That's where the email list would be nice because then you can contact them directly. So if you had a com, if you did, like Rochelle said, if your goal was to become a strategy consultant, I'd start a podcast and a mailing list that was like a, like a, like a, a follow on a next step from the podcast. Like, Hey, if you enjoy the podcast, Sign up for mailing list to get free announcements every time there's a new episode or for additional show notes or something like that. And and start building that trust early. Because with with strategic consulting, trust is everything. Like if, if you're not perceived as the authority or at least the, a recognized expert in the space, it's a tough sell.
1: So um, there's a lot of people that really what they're trying to do is get a side hustle to get some extra income. It's not necessarily with a strategic goal. Um, and I think, but I, I kind of want to answer the question directly that he asked, which is going in this courses and in info products is the easiest way in the sense of setting it up and kind of setting it and forgetting it. It is the easiest way. But in order to do that, you really have to have an audience to sell it to. To Jonathan's point, that's where the newsletter comes in. Maybe not a podcast for that, although it might be appropriate. depends what you're doing. But so then what you want to do is you want to solve A very particular big problem, in a way that you can draw a box around it so that you can manage your time and just you know throw a lot of money in the bank.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It just
1: goes back to knowing what your goal is.
0: Yeah, I mean, right. Because if you're just looking to make side money, there are there's like no end to the the way you know you need some kind of clear objective and some kind of strategy to decide which one of those things would make the most sense like you could drive uber at night like there's there's a million possibilities of things you can do mm-hmm. um so i mean honestly if you're and if you're not sure about that stuff or if people listening aren't sure about what that looks like for them then you could go back to our episode i think it was called selling at the intersection yeah, It's selling at the intersection yeah Yeah, and where we talked about the venn diagram with the sweet spot in the middle you know talents talents passions, passions and market and market and that sweet spot in the middle and you just sort of like fill in those bubbles and see what the overlap is Mm -hmm. and then and then you're like okay but what are my constraints my constraints are is my big constraint is i work nine to five so what do you pick of the list of things that are in that center area in the center you know which ones are feasible given your available resources
1: yeah any any time you can leverage is going to be helpful when you're Mm -hmm. looking at a side hustle
0: Right. Okay. So let's move on to Jacob's second question. Now, if you transition from implementation to design and strategy and refer out the implementation, do you work out partnership deals to earn a commission to the companies you refer work to, or do you just refer with no strings attached? Oh, classic classic. (laughs)
1: Classic. I love it. I love it.
0: This is for me, this is a definite, no, I do not take a commission. I, because Mm -hmm. the problem is it, it creates a conflict of interest dynamic. Where, if you're operating at an advisory level and what you're advising them to do is going to get you a kickback, it makes it difficult to trust your advice. Even if you're yeah. the most ethical person on earth, people know that financial incentives affect behavior. So, that appearance of impropriety uh, was a Deal breaker for me. I I I, with a very close friend and a really good client one time I crossed the streams And I when I say I instantly regretted it. I mean the very first phone call we had I was like this was a giant mistake Mm -hmm. Because not only Did I recognize that there was a different vibe on the conversation regarding? My relationship with the client and it was a big downgrade for me Because now I was like, even though I wasn't doing the work, even though I wasn't doing the implementation, I recommended the person. I brought them in and it was like it all uh, reflected back on me as almost like a project manager kind of role, which was a big downgrade from like an advisory partner, you know.
1: Oh, huge that's, mistake that's, that's an interesting perspective yeah so, I, so, I got out of that as
0: fast as I could
1: yeah so you felt like it because you were there still working with the client mm-hmm. you were doing strategy somebody else did execution but it's like you couldn't separate yourself from that other project
0: yeah I became operational
1: mm, interesting
0: terrible mm-hmm
1: Interesting. See, I've never taken um, commissions and I do it for pretty much the same reason that you said, which is that um, it gives the appearance of impropriety. It's really hard to trust somebody who's going to get, you know, some money out of your recommendations. And even especially when it's a lot of money um you know a typical commission in some of the consulting things when when there is one most people don't pay them is somewhere between 10 and 20%. So if you're doing a you know a $500,000 project that's $100,000 and so a lot of people look at that and go well yeah you know I need to take that um the answer is no. Um I don't ever want to make a recommendation where somewhere in the back of my mind I'm thinking about how much money I'm going to make on it. Mhm. It just uh, it messes with it messes with your integrity. And especially if you're doing um, high value strategy style consulting, you cannot afford to have anything in between you and your client that impacts the tr- your trust. You just you you just can't. And it's funny because I first learned about this when I was working in the big firm many years ago, and they had a hard and fast rule. And one is no commissions. And the other is they did a lot of pension valuation work, right, which is understanding how well or not well the pension plan is funded. And they tell the corporation, this is what you have to um, put into the plan this year, and this is what you expense, et cetera. So the firm would only take corporate clients. They would not do union plans. Because the feeling was, at some point, they might have to be across the table (laughs) from each other. And that was a no-no. And there were other organizations that just did union plans. So what I learned really early on in the big firm was how easy it is for someone to have the appearance of doing the wrong thing.
0: Yeah. And just think of the experience like when you go into a car dealership that sells on commission and one that doesn't.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: It's a completely different vibe. and uh, when, when that, I mean, I said it already, but financial incentives matter. They change behavior. They change, they Mm -hmm. first, they change your thinking, then they change your words, then they change your behavior. So that's, this is, I don't think for example, I don't think affiliate programs are evil or a bad thing. And I have friends who do them. It's fine, but I can't do it. I don't do any affiliate things. I don't do any ads because it makes you think differently. I don't take sponsors for my newsletter. It just makes you, it starts to make you think differently. It takes your eye off the ball, in my opinion, where it's like, you know, now the sponsor is like, well, you know, how many opens did you get? I'm like, now I'm trying to get my opens up. It's like, no, I don't want to think about that. I want to think about delivering value to the reader every single time. I mean, you might have noticed, what are we on? Episode 178. Have you heard any ads? No, not even for our own stuff. Not even
1: for our own stuff. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So
0: it just cha- it changes your focus. I had a conversation with a student yesterday. Who has a really popular YouTube channel, and out of the blue was approached by someone who wanted to write him a four-figure check to do a paid placement, you know, like a a sponsorship read, mid-roll sponsorship read, and he's like, eh, you know, he's like, what do you think? And I and so we talked, and I'm like, I'm not against it for other people; it's just not for me. And so I was like, well, mm-hmm. let's talk it through, and immediately. He started talking about, you know, I don't want to go too much detail. It's not a public conversation, but you can imagine immediately he started caring about um, ways to ethically increase his view numbers, which he had never, ever, ever thought about before.
1: Right. How can you not think about that? Right. He's like, well,
0: you know, if they're going to pay me this much per view, it was going to be a two hour long video. So maybe I just chop it into like, you know, four 30 minute videos. I'll have four times the views. And theoretically that would be, you know, and I'm like, isn't this, isn't this amazing when you, when you measure, when you're measuring, when you change what you measure, I was going to say the wrong thing, but when you change what you measure, it changes your behavior. So you better believe you're measuring the amount of money that's going into your checking account. So, you know, if you don't think that, that taking commissions would change your behavior, you're, you're probably wrong. (laughs) It's just going to change the way you think.
1: Well, the other thing is, you know, that at least was a sizable chunk of change. So I was um advising a client who uh went and got an Amazon affiliate link. And so he kept having all of these authors on his podcast. And he said, I want to put their books up and I want to earn a commission every time somebody buys the book. And I'm like, well, like it's maybe a penny. Like you're not getting enough traffic to have that amount. Amount to any money, and this was someone who was so careful about his brand and and every other way, and and so and he was like, no, no, I, you know, I want to do it. I'm going to give it to charity. I said, you're missing the point. It's the appearance of it that is not. It, it doesn't work with your brand. So as we worked through it, he realized. He said, oh, I get it now. He goes, yeah, yeah. W- let's take that off, and I'm going to donate a percentage of my fees on this to this charity that tied in with the work he was doing. I said, love it. That's the way to do it. And it's going to be a lot more meaningful money than, you know, a penny here and a dime there.
0: Right. Yeah. I, again, I, I just want to say, like, I know a lot of people that, that are great affiliates and it's totally mm-hmm. transparent and that's part yeah. of their brand. It's like expected that they would do that. Like, that's the jam, you know, um, and they sell ads and sponsorships and all that stuff. It's totally fine, but you just have to realize it's going to it changes your business model it's, it's a different approach. You're taking a different approach. It it's not, it's not for me, but it's also not evil. So if, if that's what you want to do, fine. But I think, I think that, you know, what Jacob's model strategy, it's like kryptonite. If you're doing strategy work and you're taking kickbacks for the implementation, it's just kryptonite.
1: Well, and I want to use some terms here. Um, cause I don't like the word kickback kickback to me implies that the client doesn't know. So if you're going to do this, I would argue, be upfront about it. I mean, you have to be with affiliates on websites. I mean, that's the law. But mm. if you're going to do it with a client, they should know.
0: That's a good distinction. Yeah. yeah.
1: I think then you, then it's not a kickback. It's and, and you can say something like what you say on the side is, you know, I, I, I receive a payment for this. But I think what happens is the minute you agree to do that, then you don't want to do it. You're like, <laughs> I don't want to tell the client I'm going to get this money.
0: <laughs> right yeah that's yeah. why i said kickback because i just assumed it wouldn't be like public
1: knowledge. yeah well i just i had a, a a few months ago no i guess it was yeah last year um i had a, a guy i've worked with in the past really great guy and i referred him into a situation that somebody had called me about where it just wasn't the right thing for me at all and i said oh this is the guy you need to talk about and so he came in they hired him and he's like well I, you know, I, I, I need to do something. And I said, well, if you like, you can take me to dinner. That would be nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he did. And I was like, that was great. That was a nice thank you. I got to see him. I hadn't seen him in a long time. But like money changing hands. ugh.
0: Yeah, it, it feels too transactional.
1: And especially because that's a client I've worked with before. I, they're doing great work. I really value them. And you know, if somebody is giving me money, it's increasing the price that they're charging the clients. Like it, just, it's, it just felt so wrong to me on all those levels. If I was going to do it, I would have been very upfront about it. And I mm-hmm. would have had a disclosure in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I probably would have done it with transferring his name over and say, well, there is somebody that I work with, but I want to just tell you that we have an arrangement and this mm-hmm. is what that looks like. Mm-hmm. But again, I, I just I wouldn't want to have that conversation, so I don't do it.
0: Yeah, that that's really it for me. I and I learned my lesson that, that one time. And in my my arrangement was like, you know, they had a need, their software teams were buried. I know a million software developers and I knew one that was highly qualified and was like available. And I was like, well, why don't you just you know, I'll give you a proposal, I'll have this person do the work, uh, you know, so they would pay me and I was basically marking up the developers at hour, not hour, I can't remember exactly how we did it, but I just was basically marking up the time. So I was you know, making something like 15% of the overall project fee. And it was oh, well, that's
1: like, different. That's, that to me, that's a business model. And I would have marked him up way more than 15%. I would have marked him up by half.
0: I just, it wasn't. Yeah. But, that, but, that's <laughs> but you the see thing. the difference? I was yeah. switching a business. I was switching yeah. to a different business model. And, and
1: you didn't want that.
0: I didn't want that business model.
1: Yeah, yeah. no, I totally get it. But the way that right. you did that to me is just a business model. I don't see sure. that as a, as a, a, What's the word? Like a trust not violation.
0: A yeah, but it... No,
1: it, it, isn't, it isn't a conflict. If if they're... Because they're, they're paying your bill. They're paying him through you. So their relationship is with you. So the way you set that up, of course, they're going to go through you. But if you had said instead, let me introduce you to Tom over here, and they pay Tom directly. They don't pay him through you. I'm not saying that the payment would change your relationship entirely, but it does impact it. Then, if you took something, I would call that—I would under the table—I would call that a kickback.
0: Yeah, let's take kickback off the table. Yeah, because that's, that's not the, the
1: way you did it. The way you did it is a perfectly, you know, normal way to do business.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it wasn't—it wasn't like it wasn't above board, but it, after that experience. I recognized that it was, it, it 100% changed my relationship yeah. with the client. <laughs> Definitely. And, oh, and, yeah. And it, it, it also got me looped into implementation, which I didn't, even though I wasn't doing the implementation and everybody knew it wasn't going to be me doing it, it still got me, it was on the hook for like those meetings uh-huh. or something went wrong or whatever. So I quickly got myself out of it and, and forever and ever amen after that. I would make an introduction. They would have the arrangement, and I had nothing to do with it. I didn't expect any compensation. It was just part of my advisory retainer. Part of the benefit of advisory retainers is I had a black book of ten thousand software developers if they needed someone. And but and here's their contact info. Weep yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. Right. I, I used to do that with them. I had a web de- have a web developer I've worked with a lot, and a couple times I included him in my fees. And I'm like, afterwards, I went, Rochelle, what are you thinking? First of all, there's the liability. My liability doesn't cover that kind of thing. Agreed. Second, all of a sudden, the client's comments are going through me, and I I really wasn't marking it up. I was just like kind of doing it as, it, you know, it was easier because he's offshore. I thought, oh, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I guess there was a little markup, but not like what I would normally do when I had a firm with people and you're making money on leverage. Hmm. And I was like, stop this right now. <laughs> and, you know, and he's a great guy, he does great work, but I don't want him to go through me every time he needs something for a client, please. No, mm-hmm. no, no, no.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So hopefully, hopefully we've answered that for Jacob. <laughs> And, no, 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 <laughs> and, and, right and, and for anybody else who's thinking because we covered a couple of we covered a few use cases that aren't specifically the one he brought up, but yes. hopefully other people uh, listening um, maybe fall into some of those other categories
1: It's a good conversation to have if you're thinking about doing this like just. If you don't have somebody to talk to about it, work your way through each step of what's going to happen, so you can figure out how it's going to feel as you do it. And and you know it may be all green lights for you with what you're doing, and that's okay. But go through the exercise mm-hmm. of seeing what it's going to feel like and how your thinking is going to change before you decide to do it.
0: Yep, yep, hundred percent. Yeah, and I do right, and I do have people who do sort of upfront architecture work sort of like a design build architecture company mm-hmm. where there's an initial engagement and, and but they've got contractors and then they're you know the expectation is that they're probably going to do the build they're going to land the build work because they did the, the design uh, And if that's if that's the kind of business you want to be in um, that's fine but it's, it, well, it just wasn't the kind of business i wanted to be in
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah totally cool cool all right so we have we have officially caught up on our uh, we got we did get to these questions before they had a birthday so i guess it could have been worse but uh we would like to have more questions and and try and hold our feet to the fire to do this a little more uh regularly
1: yeah if you you like this you know let us know and ask some questions yeah we'll take them on and if you don't we won't
0: (laughs) right kind of manages itself
1: yeah it does
0: Uh, All right, folks, so I guess uh, the best place to go if you wanted to send in a voice recording would be jump over to uh, the website, thebusinessofauthority.com, and our contact information is there, Uh, and you can send in your questions. That'd be great. Cool. It's always fun to hear people's voices, I think. I I know.
1: I like that. We we feel not so alone Mm -hmm. (laughs) in our own little echo chamber.
0: Exactly. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark.
1: And I'm Rochelle Moulton.
0: And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye.
1: Bye Bye-bye.